If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 uh, this evening. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I love both of those hymns that we just sang. I always think of my grandparents whenever I sing, To God Be the Glory. We, we started singing an updated version of that hymn uh, when we were uh, ministering in, in Little Rock, and so it's been a long time since I have sung the original version of that hymn. Uh, it always makes me think of my grandparents. I went to a little small country Baptist church that looks a lot like this room, and my grandparents sat on the third pew on this side, <laughs> and I sat in between them because Memo had candy in her purse. And she wouldn't thump me on the back of my head when I fell asleep. And so that hymn always makes me think of them. Um, and you don't know them, but they know you because they apparently watch us on YouTube now. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. Enough reminiscing from hymnody. Colossians chapter 2. Follow along with me as we read uh, verses 1 to 5. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, help us. We pray. We ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination. We pray, Father, for your grace to be with us now. Father, we pray that we would think rightly about the scriptures, that we would apply them rightly to our lives, that we would respond to them rightly in faith and obedience, that your word would have its effect in us, God, among us and through us, both in this church and these neighborhoods and to the very ends of the globe. Lord, please keep me from error. Please help me to teach things that are true and faithful to the scriptures. Please grant your people discernment in all things, God, so that no one may be deluded by plausible arguments, just as we read in this passage, but that we would all be saved, Father, through faith in Christ, who is uh, the truth. We pray this in his name, knowing that you hear us, because he's risen from the dead. Amen. Our passage this evening is like an intersection in Paul's letter to the Colossians. An intersection, as you know, brings together a number of roads and it allows a driver to make a turn as he goes on his way. That's how verses 1 to 5 in Colossians chapter 2 work. Like roads converging on an intersection, Paul is summarizing much of what he has taught so far. He's bringing together the threads of his teaching. All the lanes and the avenues come together in this paragraph, and you can get a sense for that convergence in verse 3 which is both the heart of this passage and a summary of everything that Paul has taught to this point. Look at verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in one sentence, that's Paul's message to the Colossians so far. 
Knowing God is a priceless treasure, and Jesus is the chest in which that treasure is contained. To receive this treasure, you need only to see and embrace Christ by faith. That's a glorious thought, isn't it? That you would know all the riches of God by receiving Christ by faith. These are rich thoughts. But in the context of Colossians, they're not new, right? They're not new in the context of this letter. This is what Paul has been teaching all through the first chapter. To know God, you must know Him through Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like an intersection then, this paragraph is bringing together all the, all the roads of Paul's teaching up to this point. But an intersection also signals that a turn is coming. The road that you've been driving on is about to shift, and in order for you to get to your journey, you've got to shift with it. And so it is with these verses. Paul's letter is about to make a shift in its direction. Verses 6 and 7, which Bill uh, is going to preach next week, are the turning point of the letter. Paul's going to shift from explaining or expositing the truth of Christ, and he's going to begin to more pointedly apply the truth of Christ. That's the turn that's coming up. He's going to shift from the indicative to the imperative, so to speak. That's not, it's not a hard and fast shift, because he's, he's been making applications so far. Uh, Paul hasn't ignored application throughout chapter 1. I mean, far from it, just as an aside, all doctrine is application. And if the doctrine that you know isn't leading to application in your life, then you probably don't know the doctrine that you think you know. Right? All, all doctrine is application, for doctrine's always meant to work. So Paul's been making application all through chapter 1, but that emphasis is going to get a lot more pointed, a lot more direct in next week's text. Verses 6 and 7. So our passage, verses 1 to 5, our, our passage is like an intersection. It's bringing together those roads and it's preparing us to make, to make the turn. And, and you can see this preparation to make the turn to application. You can see it in verse 4. Look at verse 4 where for the first time Paul alludes to the reason for writing this letter. Why has he written this letter, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is the first clue that there are enemies within the Colossian church seeking to turn these believers away from Jesus Christ. And so this is why Paul writes the letter, so that no one may delude you, so that you will stand firm in the knowledge of Christ so that the truth of the gospel will have its full effect and protect these believers from, from delusion. So from this, we see Paul's point in this, in this intersection of a, of a passage. According to the Apostle Paul, what is of utmost importance for the life of the church is the knowledge of Christ. What is of utmost importance for the life of a church is the knowledge of Christ. In order for a church to grow and thrive in both truth and mission, the knowledge of Christ must remain central to our life and ministry. In fact, this idea of centrality is what holds this passage together. This is fascinating to me, and it adds to the image of an intersection I want you to notice how verse 3, which talks about the knowledge of Christ, is literally the heart of the paragraph. L look at the, 
Look at your copy of the Scriptures. And, and notice how all of the other verses relate to verse 3 with this beautiful symmetry. Verse 1 and verse 5 both describe Paul's relationship to the Colossians. And then verse 2 and verse 4 describe Paul's purpose in writing to the Colossians. And that leaves verse 3 right at the center. Right at the center. What's the center of the church's life? The knowledge of Christ, the Lord Jesus, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, just on both a literal level and the way Paul wrote the paragraph, and then also on a doctrinal level, the knowledge of Christ is the center of the Apostle Paul's strategy for this church. And therefore, it has to remain central for us too. We need to remain focused on the knowledge of Christ. But I want to clarify something at this point. I want to clarify something about the nature of doctrine. When we talk about the knowledge of Christ, we're talking about doctrine, and we tend to think of doctrine merely as propositional statements. We, we tend to reduce doctrine to facts that can be listed out in neat, logical order. And don't get me wrong, doctrine is propositional. Um, there are facts that constitute the knowledge of Christ. But for the Apostle Paul, and indeed for all of the New Testament, the doctrine of the, the knowledge of Christ, doctrine, okay, the knowledge of Christ is never merely propositions. It's never merely facts. For Paul, the knowledge of Christ is active. It's not, it's not passive. It's not something that you just think about and say, yes, now I affirm all of the right doctrines. Right? The knowledge of Christ is active. It's life-giving. To say it a different way, doctrine is doing something in the life of a church. It's working. It's producing in us something that we would not have if it didn't remain central. This is why every congregation ought to care about truth and doctrine. Every congregation ought to care about the knowledge of Christ. It's not passive. It's not merely propositional. It's, just, it's not just facts. It's active. It's life-giving. It's dynamic. It's doing something in the gathering of the people of God. And that clarifying point about what doctrine is, that's, that's what gives us our outline for this evening. My... my my presupposition for this sermon is that the knowledge of Christ is active. It's doing something. It's working. So based on that, I want to draw your attention to four ways that the knowledge of Christ is working in the life of a church. Four effects of the active, life-giving knowledge of Christ that's happening in any church that bases its life on the Bible. There's four of them. Let's think about each one more closely. Effect number one is found in verse two. The knowledge of Christ provides encouragement. The knowledge of Christ provides encouragement. If you remember from last week, chapter one ended with Paul describing his struggle for the Colossians. You can see there verse 29 of chapter one. For this I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy. Chapter 2 begins with the same note. Look at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. 
So Paul has not seen the Colossians before. He's never met them. But that doesn't change his relationship towards them. He ministers on their behalf. He struggles for them in prayer. And he labors now in writing this letter. Why would Paul struggle and fight for a group of people that he's never met before? Because at his core, the Apostle Paul is a pastor. We tend to think of Paul as a trailblazing missionary. And that's true to some extent. But in all of his trailblazing for the gospel, what is Paul doing? What is he doing at every stop on his trailblazing missionary work? Planting churches. Gathering the people of God. Installing elders. Tending the flock. Setting churches in good order. Reminding them that the church is a pillar and buttress of truth. Teaching them to do everything decently and in good order according to the scriptures. He's a pastor. This is true in all of Paul's letters. His eye is always on the spiritual health of God's people. This is why Paul fights so hard for the truth. This is why he contends for the faith. It's not because he wants to win arguments. It's because he wants to care for people's souls. That's why he labors and struggles and fights, to use the language of verse 2. Because he wants to care for people's souls. In verse 2, Paul goes on to give the purpose of his struggling. Why does he labor for their sake? Verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. Encouragement, then, is the purpose of Paul's labor. We need to understand that when Paul speaks of encouragement, he is not simply talking about an emotional state. He is not aiming to just make the Colossians feel better. Rather, the idea here for encouragement is twofold. Paul wants to comfort and to strengthen them. This is why Paul speaks of encouraging their hearts. Again, he's not talking about how the Colossians feel. (laughs) That tends to be how we define the heart as the place of our feelings and our emotions. But in the Bible, the heart is much more than our feelings. Not less than, but it's much more than our feelings. The heart is the command center of your life. The heart is the seat of personality. What we want, how we think, how we act, all of that, according to the Bible, is connected to your heart. It's really determined by your heart, by what you love. So when Paul says that his purpose is to encourage their hearts, he means so much more than making them feel better. His aim is to strengthen them at the deepest part of their person so that they will think and act and love in accords with the truth. His purpose in laboring for their sake is encouragement. Of course, that raises the question, where will the encouragement come from? If the heart is the command center of life, what could possibly strengthen such a deeply personal thing? Well, the answer is right there at the center of this text, verse 3. What will encourage them? The truth that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's the source of encouragement. This is so important that we make this connection. Paul knows the Colossians are troubled. He knows their hearts are uneasy. He knows they are discouraged by these false teachers. And that's precisely why 
Paul pursues the strategy that he does. He knows that at the end of the, de- at the, end of the day, the only antidote to such powerful discouragement is something that's equally powerful, namely the truth that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are given to you by faith so that Christ dwells in you. Paul knows that the only lasting encouragement that only lasting encouragement can come from knowing Christ who is the very mystery of God. And that's why Paul keeps coming back to this same point over and over in these first two chapters. It's because his aim is to truly encourage these believers where they need it most, at the heart level. He's not seeking to make them feel better. Aiming to strengthen the center of their person. And so bef- before we move on, I just want to make sure that we are all clear on, on, on something here. Uh, spiritual discouragement is real. Spiritual depression is real. If you haven't read Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, you should read that. Spiritual discouragement is real. Paul doesn't dismiss the trouble that the Colossians are facing. He takes that discouragement seriously, and so should we. We should, we should take it seriously that many of our brothers and sisters are probably coming into the Lord's Day gathering fighting for faith on some level and discouraged. And at the same time, we should recognize Paul's wisdom in that he fights the discouragement with the only real remedy, the life-giving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again and again and again and again, Paul gives them Jesus. So, if you're discouraged, brothers and sisters, if you're discouraged, if your heart is heavy with trouble, if you are uneasy because of concerns, then I I pray that you would be comforted and encouraged again with this good news from Colossians 2. Jesus Christ is enough to sustain your faith. Jesus Christ is enough to sustain your faith. His wisdom is enough to guide you in whatever you face. His knowledge is enough to protect you from delusion. His grace is enough to cover your sin. His mercy is enough to meet today's troubles. His compassion is enough to weep with you in sorrow. His sovereignty is enough to hold life together. His patience is enough to bear with you as you pray about that same thing again and again and again. And His glory is enough to satisfy your soul. Jesus Christ is enough to sustain your faith. So not to sound trite, but I hope to follow Paul's example, look to Him. Go to His Word and hear again how the Lord Jesus is sufficient. And listen, if your discouragement is so deep that you can't see those things in the Bible for a season, which is possible, which is possible. I preached for an entire year without seeing hardly anything good for my soul in the Bible. If your heart is so discouraged that you can't see the truth, don't stay in the darkness. Go find another Christian and say, help me see what I can't see. The two people who got me through that year of not seeing are sitting over here in this pew. My wife and my friend. They helped me to see what I couldn't see. And what they gave me was Jesus. 
So if you can't see, if you can't see, go to someone and ask them, help me see what I know to be true. That's the first way the knowledge of Christ works in a church. It produces encouragement. Friends, my entire philosophy of pastoring is wrapped up in that point. That's it. That's all I have to say about being a pastor. It's the second way the knowledge of Christ works. Again, verse 2. The knowledge of Christ strengthens unity. It produces encouragement and it strengthens unity. Notice the next phrase, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, here it comes, being knit together in love. The Colossians already enjoy unity that love produces in the church. Remember chapter 1, where Paul thanked God for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and for the love that they have for all the saints. That's unity in a church, rooted in love. So they already have unity. What Paul is talking about in verse 2, here in chapter 2, is strengthening that unity. But that raises a question. How does the knowledge of Christ strengthen unity in a church? You've probably heard the phrase before that doctrine divides people. I'm making the exact opposite argument right now. That doctrine unifies people. And that it strengthens unity. How does that happen? How does the, doc, how does the knowledge of Christ, the truth about Jesus, strengthen unity in a church? Here's my answer. The knowledge of Christ destroys the roots of divisiveness. Remember, visible disunity in a church is only a fruit. It's not the actual root problem. The root problem is much deeper. The root problem is things like manipulation, rivalry, envy, comparison, contention. So, if the ugly fruit of disunity is on display in a church then you can be sure that those kinds of things are at the root. But the knowledge of Christ is like a sharp spade that the master gardener of the Holy Spirit uses to dig out all of those roots. So, so just think about it here with me. The knowledge of Christ kills manipulation. When I know that all I have uh, when, when I know that I have all I need in Christ, I don't need to use people to get what I think I lack. I have Christ, and therefore I lack nothing. The knowledge of Christ kills comparison. When I know that I am complete in Christ, I don't have to compare myself with other people or compete with them for position in the church. The knowledge of Christ kills envy. When I believe that Christ dwells in each one of us by faith, I don't have to be jealous over what you have because we both have Jesus in full. What reason is there to be envious? Do you see it? It's this, the sharp spade that the Holy Spirit uses, the knowledge of Christ, the truth of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit comes in and it, he digs out all of those roots, those ugly roots that lead to disunity. I remember experiencing this in my own life. I took um, all of my New Testament classes with a friend of mine in seminary who was amazingly gifted 
at New Testament studies. He's now a professor at a seminary. He's brilliant. And I would sit next to him in class so that when I didn't know what the word was, he could tell me. But he would never tell me. He would never tell me. And we were walking home from class one day to Springdale Apartments, and I was bemoaning the fact that he was so much better at New Testament Greek than I was. And just with the simplicity, Laura knows this brother, just with the simplicity that only this guy could have, he was like, brother, that's just the gift that God gave me, and he gave you a different one that I don't have, and so we can just be content. Yes. That is a godly way to respond. And then he just kept, we just kept on with the walk, and he, that, was, that was it. But just the simplicity of his saying, God gave me a gift, and he gave you gifts, and we don't have to compete with one another. And he was done with it, and it, was, it freed my soul for the rest of the semester, and it was fruitful. The Holy Spirit takes that knowledge of Christ that you and I are both complete in him, and he digs out those roots of disunity. That's amazing, I think, but here's even more amazing uh, thoughts on this aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. The knowledge of Christ is so powerful, it not only digs out the old roots, it also goes on to plant something new in the soil of my heart. It plants a love for others that leads to unity. So when I understand who Christ is and how he provides all that I need for life, then I am free to do the most Christ-like thing I could ever do love you, and put your interests ahead of my own. Instead of using people, I serve them. Instead of comparing myself to others, I encourage them. Instead of envying others, I minister to them, believing that their joy is my joy, their sorrow is my sorrow, their gifts are for my good, and my gifts are for their good. Where does that kind of love come from? comes from the knowledge of Christ that knits our hearts together in unity. So nothing, nothing is more practically helpful for life and godliness in a church than believing what is true about Jesus Christ. This is why I will preach the gospel every single Sunday until I drop dead or Jesus comes back. Because nothing is more practically helpful In fact, show me a church that is wrecked with strife and division and contention and I will show you a church whose view of the gospel is too low. The knowledge of Christ strengthens unity because it binds all of our hearts together in love, in Jesus. That's the second work that the knowledge of Christ does, the second effect. Effect number three, also from verse two. The knowledge of Christ produces discernment. Encouragement, unity, and it produces discernment. Look at the final line of the verse. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, here it comes, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, we know from verse 4 that Paul is concerned that the Colossians are not deluded or deceived by the false teachers. 
the false teachers in verse 4 have plausible arguments, Paul says. That means their arguments sound persuasive. (laughs) This is really important. Error does not look dangerous on the surface. Irenaeus, an early church father, said this about error in his work against heresies. Irenaeus said, quote, Error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. Error looks plausible. It sounds persuasive. But here in verse 2, Paul gives the defense against such arguments. And the defense is this full assurance of understanding. Notice that word, understanding. We said this earlier about encouragement, but it bears repeating here. Paul is not simply concerned with how the Colossians feel. He's, he's not solely trying to comfort their emotions. Paul wants to fortify their minds. So when he talks about understanding, when he wants to strengthen their understanding, his aim is to help them think rightly about the things of God. He wants them to think rightly. Specifically, Paul wants the Colossians to have full assurance. You see it there? The full assurance of understanding. The idea here is certainty or conviction. And it comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. So when those plausible arguments from the false teachers attempt to creep in, the Colossians can say with certainty that they already understand the mystery of God's will. They've already received the fullness of God. They can say with conviction that they already know the one true and living God because they know Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If the false teachers are peddling uh, a false gospel, knocking on the door and trying to sell them a false gospel, the Colossians say, no thanks, we don't need that. We already have the fullness of God's riches in Jesus. And ultimately, this is the Apostle Paul's strategic plan for making disciples. He equips Christians in the truth. He equips Christians in the truth. The knowledge of Christ is active, in other words. It fortifies the mind of the believer. And it gives us the assurance that we need to stand against plausible and persuasive arguments. This is why time spent knowing God is never wasted. Ever. Because the knowledge of Christ fortifies our minds and produces in us discernment that keeps us in the faith. And we need to recognize that these kinds of plausible arguments, sadly, are not limited to the first century. We live in a world today that is full of plausible-sounding, persuasive ideas. And those ideas are not neutral. Ideas have consequences. In fact, there is no such thing as any sort of neutrality when it comes to truth. Ideas have consequences. Every idea leads somewhere. This is why it's so vital that we know the truth of Jesus Christ, that we know the scriptures, that we know what we believe and teach as a congregation and as individual believers. But, but here, here's the key. It's not enough to, to know it or to hear it once. We have to keep knowing it. We have to to keep studying it, keep pursuing the truth of God's word. 
as Christians, our reflex should be that when we hear something, we ask ourselves, what does Scripture say about that idea? How does this fit with the truth of God's Word? I'm not saying that literally every topic is covered in the Bible. Christians of good conscience could probably disagree with one another on things like tax policy. We're all going to agree that we ought to pay taxes to Caesar. So I'm not saying that every topic in the Bible, I mean every topic in life is covered in the Bible, but I am saying that God's word is sufficient for life in godliness. So it's not enough just to know the truth, we need to keep knowing it. Because that continued embrace of the truth leads to maturity in Christ. It leads us to love for neighbor and obedience to God. That's why we seek to grow in the knowledge of Christ so that our minds are fortified with convictions that overflow in faithful living. That's the fourth effect of the knowledge of Christ. Encouragement, unity, discernment. Here's the last effect, verse 5. The knowledge of Christ fortifies faith. The knowledge of Christ fortifies faith. Look again, verse 5. Paul writes, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Again, Paul has never visited this church, but he stands with the Colossians in the fight of faith. He prays for them. He writes to them. He sends co-workers to them. He's with them in spirit. And through that partnership, Paul has been encouraged to see their firmness of faith. I think this is important to note in this letter. The Colossians have not turned away from the gospel. God has kept them in the faith. Yes, the false teachers are a threat. And yes, the Colossians may be growing weary in that struggle. But they are standing firm. Paul commends their faith. And at the same time, Paul's commendation is also an exhortation. Notice how in verse 5, Paul clearly highlights the centrality of Christ. He rejoices to see the firmness of their faith in Christ. Note that connection between faith and Christ. What's remarkable about the Colossians is not their faith per se, but the object of their faith, the Lord Jesus. That that little phrase in Christ is not a throwaway statement, in other words. It's actually key. Why have the Colossians stood firm? Because they have remained rooted in Jesus. They have stood firm because of the power of God's word in the gospel. So this is, this is one of the paradoxes of genuine faith, I think. While we trust in Christ, it's actually Christ who is holding us firm in that faith. Christ is the anchor that gives faith its, its firmness. The more that I see Christ and know Him and trust Him, the deeper my faith becomes, the stronger my faith grows. Am I the one trusting in Jesus in that moment? Yes, I am, to be sure. But am I the one anchoring my faith? No, it's actually Christ Himself held out to me in the Gospel. So that the continued hearing of the gospel, the continued reception of the gospel, is one of the means that God uses to keep us in the faith. 
And so we learn this vital lesson about biblical faith. Faith takes its strength from its object, not its subject. Faith is strengthened by what it looks towards, not what it looks into. And so please catch what this means. Being strong in faith is not something that wells up from inside of us. If, if your faith is weak, you don't look inside to make it strong. The strength of faith comes from outside, comes from outside of us, from knowing and beholding and seeing and treasuring and savoring the Lord Jesus. So to say it a different way, the knowledge of Christ given to us in the gospel is what we believe and in believing, that same knowledge is fortifying us to keep believing. It, it's really the miracle that's happening in every moment of gospel faith. God is preserving us and keeping us through the very thing He calls us to do. Trust Him. And so I pray that, that this final point is an encouragement to you. I know it's an encouragement to me. I, I've really only had one application this whole sermon. It's four points with one application. <laughs> and I'm going to repeat it here at the end. The knowledge of Christ is an anchor for your soul, a solid foundation for your faith and trust. And if your faith is weak, then don't, don't try to strengthen it on your own. Remind yourself of the gospel. Listen to God's word as it holds out to you this incredible good news that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Those who belong to Christ lack nothing before God. They lack nothing for life in God's world. And knowing Christ is what will strengthen and keep them firm until the end. The gospel is enough, friends. It is more than enough to confirm us and keep us in the faith even to the very last day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you would reveal yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful, Father, that your word is living and active and that when you reveal your truth to us in Christ, it's not, it's not a merely propositional thing. It's, it is a life-giving, active, faith-strengthening thing so that when we know Christ, we are being kept by the very knowledge in which we are trusting. It's a staggering thought, God, that you would be so kind to us to daily call us to embrace Christ by faith and in that daily embrace, give us the grace that we need to keep us firm to the end. Father, we pray for eyes to see. We confess that we are so often drawn away after other things. We pray, Father, that we would have eyes to see the glory of Christ that in the midst of all of the things that clamor and compete for our attention all of the things father that stir up worry and concern and anxiety in our hearts that in the midst of all of those things we would we would have this anchor of the soul that in christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and that we would look to him and that we would commune with him and that we would be his ministers father in his church and in our different spheres of life and even to the ends of the earth Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would 
rejoice in Him and be satisfied in Him so that His glory is seen in the life and ministry of a unified, joyful, blessed, thriving church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.